welcome to Keep the Bastards on Us, the podcast of the Australian Democrats. I'm your host, Alana Mitchell, and on this episode, we're smart enough to love science. Greg Wire is the co-host of my favourite podcast, Smart Enough to Know Better, a podcast of science, comedy and ignorance. And I've been wanting to chat to him for a long time about science and why it's so important to our policymaking and governance. When I first asked Greg to come onto the podcast, his instinctive reaction was to say, oh no, no, I can get you real doctor scientists. You don't need to settle for me. And listeners, rest assured, I'll be taking Greg up on his very kind offer of giving us doctor scientists to talk to. In fact, we have quite a few of them in the Democrats already. But I wanted to talk to Greg about science as a science communicator and enthusiast, rather than as a research scientist. That said, we're not exactly slumming it with Greg, as he is an astrophysicist, just not a research one. Apparently, there's a hierarchy. Something to keep in mind is that we recorded this in the first week of January, when the Omicron COVID outbreak was at its height, and Greg and I were still living in the independent sovereign nation of Australia, with our borders closed to the rest of the country. This informs the discussion we have on COVID and vaccinations, and even though it was only a couple of months ago, so much has changed in the discourse around COVID in that the media has essentially lost interest in the pandemic and seem to have decided it's over. I decided to leave it in as a snapshot of where the country was and a reminder that even though we all want it to be over, the pandemic is still with us and still impacting us. It's something to think about as the federal election approaches us. Greg is an incredible communicator, a delightful and very funny human being, and I hope you enjoy listening to this episode as much as Steve and I enjoyed talking to Greg as we recorded it. Greg, Steve and I pay our respects to the traditional owners of the land upon which we met and their elders past and present. Sovereignty never ceded. I've got a question for you, Greg. Please, yes. Like I'm, 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 I'm curious. Which is, is there, is there anything as we sort of sit here at the beginning of 2022? Mm-hmm. Is there anything in the world of science that you are particularly looking forward to over the next 12 months? The big one at the moment for me in the astrophysics realm is the James Webb Space Telescope, the JWST, and uh, that's in space heading to the Lagrange point where it's going to be in orbit around. It's opening up its solar sails at the moment, its it's barrier sails. It's going to be the world's most powerful telescope up in space, uh, and it'll be like 10 metres across technically this giant mirror, which compared to Hubble, you know, the Hubble Space Telescope, that was two Mm. metres across. So this thing's going to be ludicrously powerful. That's going to see the world in infrared and uh, in a way that we've never seen it before and see further away for distant galaxies. That's the next big thing. It's like 10 years delayed, so finally it's here. And Mm -hmm. it seems to be working quite well. Well, it hasn't... It's being deployed right now, and this, this is going to take weeks to deploy it and then yep. months to test it and make sure it's running. But we'll start seeing stuff in 2022 because it didn't blow up on the launch pad. It didn't, it didn't, it didn't, it doesn't look like it's going to fly off into space and get lost forever. Uh, mm-hmm. If it screws up, it's so far away that we can't get to it. Unlike Hubble, where we could put glasses on it and fix the, uh, like the optics, if there's something wrong with the JWST, that's it. 
it's we just go buy two billion dollars bye love you thank you for the enjoy the flight into space and that's the end of it uh so yeah the jwst is is the most exciting thing in science for me oh i should or i should say something else Mm. i'll get in trouble otherwise uh, the other thing is we're finally turning soil for the uh, for the SKA, the Square Kilometre Array, over here mm-hmm. in Western Australia. Yeah, so wow. the world's largest radio telescope um, mm-hmm. with the SKA consortium. There are oh a number of countries involved, 11, 14. I can't quite remember anymore, but lots of countries. The SKA uh, low is being made here. So uh, imagine a Christmas tree and a hill's hoist had a baby. That's kind of what it looks like. And mm-hmm. it basically uh, is 131,000 or so of these antenna spread across the Western Australian desert. And it will be looking for unbelievably low radio frequencies, low energy radio frequencies, allowing us to see stupidly early, much earlier than the JWST, which only sees in dirty old infrared. But it, we only turn the soil uh, this year, sometime this mm-hmm. year, and it'll take five years to build. That's a bit cheating. If, you know, it's not 2022, but it'll take about five years to get it fully constructed. You actually helped build the SKA, didn't you? No. I, uh, <laughs> no. No, oh, you- <laughs> no, I work for an organization that's instrumental in the SKA, yes. It- I helped in a very small way in one of the precursor telescopes, one called the MWA, the Murchison Wide Field Array. And when I say, once again, I know astrophysicists will be very angry at me. What I'm saying is I was very lucky to go out into the Murchison region and help uh, with the the, um, adding to the cores, adding the little robot spiders, basically, the little little dipoles antenna out there. So I was grunt work moving things into the desert and moving it around. So yes, I helped, but I'm just going to, really point out that I I just lifted heavy things. Well, look, that is technically correct, which, as you know, your podcast tells us, is the best form of correct. That's true, yes. I yes, just, just worry that time I listen to this and go, oh, Greg, we're going to have a chat to you later on about this. <laughs> Sorry. With, without, no, those heavy things, without those heavy things, Greg, would the array have worked? No, 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 absolutely not. It would C- take a lot. It, it would central have- <laughs> to the success of <laughs> the array. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. No, that's yes. fine. That's okay. They would have to have paid a PhD student a lot more than they have to pay me. So I saved <laughs> I saved Australia money. There you go. There you well go. Done. Thank you. And without Thank you, you the SKA wouldn't work. Well, yeah, go. that's well yeah, on look on some oh my goodness, I'm gonna get in some trouble. <laughs> so yes. can we come no, back I'm gonna to take the... it. Without me, the okay. SKA would ne- would never have happened. There you can go. We, can we come back to the, the James Webb telescope for a, for a moment? Absolutely. So it is sitting in the Second Lagrange point, yes, um, which is a hundred, uh, sorry, one point five million kilometers away from the sun, directly behind the Earth, right? Yes, yep. And if I understand correctly, that's so it can face away from the Earth, mm-hmm. and essentially the Earth creates a shadow for it. Yes, basically, it's a balancing point. It's a around because of the 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 Earth and the Sun and the way that gravity interacts around them. There are the and the and the Moon as well. To point, Mm. uh, there are these little points in space that you don't need a lot of energy to stay in those points. You go to that point, and then you only need a little bit of thruster changing to move it back and forth. This will be an orbit around a patch of space that's easy to stay around but yep. as you said it's it's so that it doesn't get blinded by the sun the earth the earth won't block it it's so far away the earth will be like right. okay. it have a massive uh it has a massive uh shield and that sun mm. shield that it, its camera and all its instruments face on one side will be perpetually in darkness for the rest of its existence and mm-hmm. then and then the other side will have the sunlight on it so we otherwise you've got to keep it really really cool for infrared cameras you've got to 
have active cooling and you run out of it. And when it's, it's fine if you want to build it around the Earth. I mean, Spitzer, there's the Spitzer telescope that uh, that does infrared and it uses coolant. But you can go and add more coolant if you need to because you, you can go. I don't think they did actually, but you can go up there and you can add more coolant. This thing, uh, JWST, is too far away. So it is going to be passively cooled by just sitting in the shadow of space and keeping its sun shield between the sun and its very, very sensitive instruments. So it, as long as it can maintain that orientation to the sun, it can work. And they said, oh, to begin with, about six years of operation, which isn't a lot. It really mm-hmm. worried me. But they've done such a great job in in launching it that they've saved propellant from the launch. Now they're saying 10 plus years. So they've already upgraded it. But I think it's because the scientists, like with the Mars rover, they go, this will last nine months, like spirit and opportunity. And then a decade later, it finally dies. I think they just lowball it. And then it's, it's, um, it's like Scotty from Star Trek. It's like <laughs> when, when the captain says, how long will it take you to do it? You say, oh, captain, it'll take a day at least in a terrible Scottish accent. And then you do it in four hours. And was like, you're a genius. Yeah, yes, wow. I am. So yes. always, kids, remember, uh, under promise, over deliver, and the yeah. world is your oyster. Yeah. Because isn't it like Voyager is still transmitting oh, back yeah. to us like decades after we thought yeah. we would lose Voyager's contact like with my it. age and it's still, yeah. <laughs> and it's still doing, it's like still, still being more useful to science than I am. So that's yeah. <laughs> the whole awesomeness of, um, you know, stuff that we think will, as you said, you know, will last nine months. We're going to go, you know, we'll send a, a rover to Mars to do this one little task that we would really, really like it to do. And then a decade later, it's still chugging along. But I and, remember- can, and nowadays you can send it more software and update its software and make it teach it to do something it couldn't do before, which is all very new and it's very, very cool. That's how they get a lot of the stuff. But you have to be careful because you, if you like, if you try and flash your router, like you change your router and it screws up, you're like, oh, and you call your friend and you fix it and you, oh, and you get it done. But if you if you fry it on the on Mars, it's that's it. It won't talk to you anymore. You can't point your antenna anymore at it and it's gone. So oh. they have to do everything really carefully. Like they have to little changes and that's why a lot of this technology you, you look at the technology it isn't new it's not like oh we, we plugged in the iphone 13 and we sent it because because that technology may break down we don't it hasn't been tested properly so you have to send sometimes decade-old technology into space so by the time they design it and then launch it and then it's in space you're going why do they send two decade-old technology why is it run with like spit wire and cans and things and why does it only have like 10 megabytes of memory and no webcam, and you get, because it just it didn't exist when it was designed back in the early nineties. That's all, or the even the aughts now. So, is is the, the, the shameful secret that a lot of the Mars rovers are running on Windows three point one? I'm gonna have to. I don't actually know. In all seriousness, I bet it runs on a Linux. I'm sort of. I bet <laughs> it runs on a Linux kernel. It. I'm, I would bet money. I don't yeah. know that, but I'm guessing it. They, they 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 look like Linux people. You know what I'm saying? Like they have oh, a yeah. Linux, they have a Linuxy look about them. Yeah, which is yeah. a good thing. That's a good thing. That's not a negative thing. Oh, good no, no. But, Working you know, for them. I was going to say that, but if they <laughs> if they were running on Linux, Linux, surely they would have told us by now. <laughs> <laughs> Every True. time. True. <laughs> True. Fair enough. <laughs> Sorry, that's an IT joke. All the um, all the Linux people just switched off. That's right. Just- you complain to their vegetarian and vegan friends. That's Sorry, Linux people, we love you. Without you, we wouldn't have, you know, um, giant telescopes. Everything, yeah. Including telescopes, including Mars rovers. Yeah, yeah, maybe, maybe, allegedly. So So when when do we expect the first images to come back from James Webb? James Webb, uh, 
I think it's about six months. I think the t- I think I think it's six months before. So it'll be mid year before they they start doing real science. We may get stuff before then, but I would say people should temper their expectations a little bit because Hubble was a visible light telescope that could also see into the near infrared, and we got those amazing deep field images. But it was it was essentially our eyes, but better. Mm-hmm. This is a infrared camera. This is, and I can, I think it can see it also into the visible spectrum, but not much. It's actually designed to see through the dust and gas that there's blocked. And so I, I worry that people are expecting beautiful vistas of the universe. And you can, of course, make it when we, you make pictures out of radio images, you can do it, but it's not, it's not going to be, oh, we took a great camera photo of space. It's going to be something else. It's yeah. so uh, I, I only worry about that because I don't, hear it enough when when the, when the jwst experts talk about it I, and they oh, you, you need to lower everyone's expectations on this because everyone's going to want the big pretty picture and they may not get what they want and uh and then that could that can they, uh, look maybe i'm wrong where will they <laughs> point it first do you know no I, i'm not too i don't know where the first targets will be something mm. that jwst can do that hubble can't do uh, mm. which is pretty cool because of infrared is Obviously, very very far away, so mm-hmm. really really distant, like slightly red shifted light from from the mm-hmm. distant universe, so distant galaxies. But also, it's heat, so it can also look for planets in our solar system. So if you're looking for planet nine or planet ten or planet X, whatever they call it, the the big thing that might be in the Oort cloud somewhere, this telescope will help us find it because it's looking for changes of heat, and this thing out there would be radiating slightly differently to the background area, and it would we'd find it. So I don't know what they're going to use it for. But it could be very, very, very close comparatively, or very, very, very far away, or both all the time. So, uh, yeah, not sure yet. No James Webb selfies. No, you can't turn it round to point at the Earth because <clears throat> that would destroy the the whole system because it would now have its instruments facing the, the sun and it would die. It just wouldn't work exactly. Mm. So it, it will never, it will never see home again. Oh, isn't that sad? That's really sad. <laughs> Humans like to anthropomorphize things, so it's like, it, yeah, we yeah. sent it away. Halley's Comet came in 86, and, and I was a wee lad in primary school, and we had to write a story, and I wrote, there was a, a probe called the Giotto probe. They sent a probe into Halley's Comet to go past the nucleus. It was the first image of a nucleus, and my teacher actually took me, not just me, but the whole class, to watch the the probe like getting the first images back from this probe, which is pretty cool. Like that was pretty ahead of the time for the, for the 80s. And so we've got to watch it, just these weird grainy images of this kind of weird landscape. We couldn't work out what was going on really because, you know, bad cameras and all the rest. But I, we had to write a story. The teacher said we had to write something about this, you know, to turn this science now into, into a writing exercise. So I wrote the story about how the Giotto probe was like really excited and it was wanted to live its mission and would do proud by its scientist parents. And then it did this great science. And then it was like, oh, can I come home now, mum and dad? Mum and dad? Mum and dad? Mum and dad? And the teacher was like, oh, this kid is... He's um he's messed up. <laughs> Watch him. Uh, <laughs> he writes this, but this this poor child being flung into space by the evil human race. Like yes. And then three decades later, you're doing a podcast about science. <laughs> yeah, it does. It does actually make a lot of sense now. I think about it. it does it's, yeah. It's, yeah. Whoops. That's awesome though. That that is like a, that's a beautiful story though. <laughs> <laughs> I was even back then. I was like, "How do you end this story?" I know with tears, many tears. Yeah. <laughs> I, I was like a six-year-old going, "I'll make everyone cry." They, then they'll yeah. feel bad about things. Yeah, yeah. get them right. I was like, "Even rainbows." Yeah. I'm like, 
So, <laughs> so that's just. Did you encourage so, anyone else to go into science as a kid, Greg? <laughs> I think, oh, absolutely. I was, I was very. Um, there's a podcast, and I'm on a podcast talking about another podcast. I was being interviewed on called "Curiosity of a Child," and Anton. It's a great podcast. Rick and Anton. Rick is the father. Anton's their 11 year old son, and it's a father son. It's a great, great idea, and I really love that idea of a father saying, "Hey, let's talk about science," and seeing it from the point of view of an 11 year old. They asked me to come on and talk about science, and I, I really enjoyed chatting to them. But being a science teacher and, and working with kids as a science communicator, I, I don't want to just talk. I want to throw questions to them. So I sort of said to Anton, hey, look, we're going to send people to Mars very soon, and there's a good chance they won't come back. Like, just, you go to Mars and, and your bones melt and radiation. Is that cool? Should we send people to effectively die on Mars? Not straight. I'm not saying fire them into the planet. but you Not know, straight away. Not straight away. But, yeah, they, they'll die pretty relatively quickly. Is that ethical is that cool and this 11 year old i won't say what he said you should go listen to the podcast but he but he had to think about it and he actually gave a really interesting answer which may, may worry some people but uh but but he thought it through and i like the fact that this 11 year old thought it through and he had an answer and he could back up his reasoning so i think it's sometimes we assume that children can't think properly or they can't think things through and i'm always surprised not always surprised i'm i'm i always tell people you will be surprised how much they do understand if you can help them get over some conceptual issues and how much they want to understand and you have to beat out the love of science out of most children you have to teach them badly and I'm not saying people do it on purpose, but parents have. I've no time. I've no time. Like I can't. I've got to. I've got to put food on the table. I've got to stop I've got asking to, questions. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> stop asking questions. And most parents are great. Absolutely, like it's it's a busy time. But when you don't have time, when you're under financial stress, when you're when you have medical issues, when the world is full of a plague, like you just want to sit down and have a quiet drink and, and maybe sit with your partner and not have your kids going. Tell me about that. I, I get it, but. <laughs> It, and, and if teachers aren't there talking about it either, then you can lose them really fast. But they want to be scientists, and then we train them not to be scientists by the way we behave, uh, which is hard, but it's something we've got to keep in mind. They don't learn to not like science. We teach them to not like science. That's a really good point because, I, I mean, just listening to, to all of that, I was sort of sitting back and thinking about my own experience as a kid and going, holy crap, I totally got taught to hate, like not taught to hate science, but... I had the science beaten out of me. And that's why for me, you know, listening to your podcast for the last decade has been really wonderful because it's reignited my my love of science and, and you know, it, it sort of reminded me, it's like actually, no, it's, you know, A, it's okay not to know stuff and B, there are a couple of, you know, um, insane idiots in Queensland <laughs> and, and now in Perth who will share that joy and share that, you know, ignorance and and, and discovery with you. Yeah, we're um, not we're not experts in it. Like we we are not experts in in any major areas, and we are generalists who are interested. Uh, mm -hmm. My my co-host Dan a long time ago made a good point, and that is to drag people kicking and screaming to science. The first thing you have to do is stop them kicking and screaming. It's <laughs> it's you, you got to it's it's such a you, oh yeah you you got to you got to say it's like a cat you can grab a cat and yank it to where you want it to be and it will go no no i don't want to be there but if you get a little bit of string or a treat and you go woo, 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 and then they oh then, then they come to you 
and it was their idea. And that's yes. what, I, as a science communicator, really, that's my job. My job is not to research anymore or do that sort of stuff. My job is to say, hey, science is really interesting. And they're like, oh, well, it doesn't affect my world. And you go, oh, you'd be surprised. And oh, it's boring. And you go, oh, look, some of it is boring. I, I, I don't love all science. I am hmm. really not into, uh, I'm not a biology guy. I, I think biology is super important. I think this this decade will be the decade of biology, as in genetics and things like that. But I'm a, I'm a physics guy. Deep down, physics is in my soul. So, but but I understand it's important. But so I, I go. Well, I'm not super into biology, but other people love it. That's great. So let's let's discuss that. And when I don't understand something on my podcast, I invite someone who is a biology person to come and chat to me about why it's important. I go, oh, okay, cool. Because I can ask dumb questions. Other thing, don't be frightened to ask dumb questions. We, as adults, we reach an age, become teenagers, and then we're like, now we have to be cool for every day from here on. And even the ones who aren't cool, like myself, we still have this level of you never look like a dickhead. I don't know if you can say that word, but, <laughs> no, <it's fine>. uh, <laughs> but, and, and you must never look like that. Never, never, never. Ne and you're like, no, 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 it's fine. It's, it's not acting like a moron. If, if you say something dumb, people say dumb things. And that's okay as long as they learn from that mistake and or they learn. It's it's when you say something stupid and you know the real answers, but it irritates me. But that's a whole different thing. Uh, so it's it's just a matter of staying, I don't know. It, it's amazing. How many adults, when you say, here's a question, and they say, I don't know. Oh, they won't say, I don't know. They go, oh, I think it's this. And you go, mm, let's, let's find out, shall we? I don't know. It's, it's funny to me. Just say, I don't know. And then pull out from your pocket all the world's information on your phone and down, you can find the answer in 10 seconds flat. It's okay. You can Let's do ask. it. And, and then you can argue with strangers about it as well. It's <laughs> the best part of the internet. Yeah. Th thank you, Linux people, again. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then you download pictures of cats. Yes. That's the other thing. All yeah, the pictures of, pictures of cats you've ever wanted to see. Everyone yes. just puts pictures of their cats online. It's amazing. Yes. It's amazing how cats took over the internet. It's true. Yeah. It's well, it's it's pretty. It's pretty obvious when you look back on it. It's kind yeah. of. I was going to say, is it is it really surprising? <laughs> there are a few dots there. I reckon we could have joined if we yeah. thought it through. There's a lot of toxoplasmosis, and now we're sending their pictures into space. So you know, I'm just saying. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> no, just the, you know, the age old battle because when dogs always won the PR war about the whole mm. man's best friend thing, and cats like that's fine. We will just control the world. Yeah. <laughs> Well, if aliens yeah, ever came down and said we must destroy humans, we'll destroy their their best friends first. All the dogs get vaporized, but then they would look at cats and go, "No, you're cool." And the cats are like, "Sure." And then yeah, they've got it worked out. Like they know what's going on. They, 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 they're close enough to us to to get everything they need from us. Look, no, honestly, cats are lovely too. Let's face it, cats mm -hmm. are cats are lovely. They're a joy. They, they play it cool, but they they. they yes, my um, because I've I've had this kitten for a week now, and one of my cats passed away in June, which was devastating. But um, um, so my surviving cat, um, he's he's been one, he's ten now, and he's he's been sort of confronted with this little tiny ball of 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 mayhem, and he's just got this sort of aura of a, a middle aged bachelor, just going like, what am I supposed to do with a toddler, and um. <laughs> And so he, he's so the last week he's he's you know he's been wonderful with her he's been very gentle and very you know so he, he's been very accepting, but he just had this air of being just a giant grump and going no nah, you know, but then secretly he'll just lie there and watch her play with stuff and and it's like you know secretly you're really thrilled like secretly you're really enjoying having this this entertaining little toddler in the house, um, and it's the whole cat you know I need to be cool I can't possibly pretend to be overjoyed about having a you know a new baby sister, so. <laughs> And I it's like think, cat, you know. I don't think cats have ever gotten over being 
they they were effectively spoiled by the Egyptians. Yes. And and they've never come down since. <laughs> no, no, they've never forgotten that they were once worshipped as gods. <laughs> yeah. 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 The expectation was set a long time ago. That's it's one of those wonderful things. I always like to think of like what ifs, especially on the podcast, but like what ifs. Imagine if cats were twice as big, like domestic oh. house, because they, they would we wouldn't have them in our homes. That would be a dangerous animal to have around the house. That'd be like a, a puma or or a, a some sort of cougar or something like that. Yeah, a lynx. It would be a, a dangerous lynx. animal. Mm-hmm. And we wouldn't have them. So they're they're not sm- they're they're big enough that we can put up with them because they go, Oh look, he's clawing my arm. What a cutie. It's like ah and <laughs> And we, we forgive them the violence, but they're independent. Like it's such a it's such a it's they had to be the right size for us to to let them into our world as much as we have. Because could oh it, it'd be it'd be dangerous. It'd just be dangerous. Yeah, like from from an evolutionary standpoint, it's just fascinating as you know how cats sort of just ended up at the. Because I, I read a tweet once that's sort of saying that they're sort of like they're God's perfect killing machines, mm. but they only weigh eight pounds, and we keep, we keep picking them up and kissing them. And like, no wonder they no wonder they're angry. You know? Well, can you imagine back in the day if the Egyptians were hanging out and suddenly a pride of lions walked into their granaries? Like, don't worry, everyone, we're going to go kill all the mice. You'd be like, no, that's not <laughs> happening. No, and you get spears and you get rid of them. And it's just like they, these smaller cats came in and was like, okay, we'll do it. And you're like, oh, and okay. I don't think you could take my eyes out before, like while I slept. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, you're not, you, you, I know you're going to eat me, but I'll be dead first. Like you, you're going to wait for me to be dead and then you'll, and you'll chow down on me, which is, you yeah, know, fair enough. Why yeah. waste? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah. Because I think my favorite Twitter account in the world is the Giant Military Cats Twitter account, and they. So anyone who doesn't, who's not on Twitter or doesn't know about this perfect account, which I think is also on Instagram. If you're an Instagram person, this genius photoshops domestic cats into stock photos of military equipment, <laughs> and they're huge. So you'll have like an aircraft carrier with a cat door on the side that's been photoshopped in and a, and a normal sized cat sort of head poking out, and just marvelous, marvelous stuff. And I. It, it does make me wonder how we would cope with, like, um, land cruiser-sized cats in our lives, you know, because they, they're still big and cuddly and, mm. you know, adorable domestic cats, but they're, they're the size of tanks and things and it's, it's the I, best. I, I like big dogs, so I'm, I'm, I'm nothing really against a little yappy dogs. Mm. <laughs> like yappy dogs. You can tell by my terminology. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not a big fan of them. Like, I like big I like big dogs. And to the point where I used to say a dog I could ride into battle is, is a real dog. Like, that's, you know, like a wolfhound, deerhound that's a dog, and I love them. And I've had these sort of dogs, and I love those sort of dogs. And I'm cool with that. I, I, an animal that size is still a 60, 70 kilogram dog is a dangerous animal if it decided to hurt you. Mm. And, but I'm, I'm like, oh no, we can deal with that. If you gave me a 60 kilogram, 70 kilogram cat, <laughs> I wouldn't go, sure, it could live in the house with me. I would be like, call animal control immediately. That's <laughs> that's a predator of 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 immense proportions. So uh, yeah. There you go. But I think, and that's a fascinating thing because I, I think it sort of reflects the difference between the fact that we as humans domesticated dogs mm. and we sort of have that cultural sense of, I guess, control and ownership of dogs versus the cats who domesticated, well, we essentially domesticated us. And you know, so, yeah, so to have like a you know, 70 kilo cat in your house, the, the, yeah, there is that fear thing of that whole, you know, <laughs> Yes. <laughs> you know <what> I mean? <laughs> My adult cat Nibbler is you know, he's eight kilos of pure lava. He's a big cat. And and that's a manageable size for a, you know, undomesticated predator. 
Um, he's, he's, he's chosen to tolerate me because, you know, I give him food and he cuddles and give him toys and, you know, clean out his litter tray. But Nibbler at 70 kilos would be a very different story. <laughs> I, I just want to throw into the conversation that a leopard weighs 25 kilos. Um, oh, okay. okay. <gasps> wow. I, I would not be cuddling a leopard on the sofa, right? No. So no, There you, you go. Know, like those, you know, like a, a leopard is the thing that, you know, drags an antelope up a tree and, and keeps it there for safekeeping sort of thing. Yep. So, you know. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Yep, that wow. Was, no. No. That's a that's a really terrifying perspective. You would be dragged <laughs> up a tree, exactly right. Yep. Awesome. I, I never dreamt that I'd end up talking about cats on my political podcast. This is brilliant. Oh, <laughs> uh, you! It's the only reason you set up this podcast. Come on. <laughs> Was the opportunity to talk politics and cats in one episode? That's true. Right, my on. two passions. <laughs> it's taken seven episodes to get here, but here we are. Yeah, that's it. This will be our final episode, guys. Thanks for listening. You know, <laughs> we've huh? peaked. That's right. Yeah. I'm done now. I've achieved everything I wanted to achieve. <laughs> back, to- back to science. Back to, back to science. Back, my back God. To, back to science. Back to science. What do you think? So I'm I'm curious. Uh, and physics, yes, and mRNA as mm. a technology. Mm. Um, two years ago, first papers came out. Two and a bit years ago, uh, mm. August 2019, I think. First real paper that looked at. Um, mRNA-based vaccines mm. as a thing that we could explore a year later, first COVID vaccines using mRNA as a technology were in trials. It took a weekend once the genome was produced to actually make a viable uh, candidate. There's been quite a bit of speculation and, you know, sort of uh, talk about what else we might use that those like that technology for yeah that's that for me is is one of the big areas of exploration in medical science and in biological science that we might be looking at over the next year or two at, at the moment i think most mrna uh, research is going to be focused around covid as you might <laughs> expect COVID, yeah. you know like <laughs> yeah, fair enough sure. but there's talk yeah. about using it to address uh, uh, cancer treatments mm. and other types of um, viruses like that that for me seems like a really interesting um and sort of fruitful strand of science over the next decade absolutely i you can't i can't agree more that's the thing this is the this is the century of biology absolutely uh where the last century was the century of physics it was i think the big difference is they talk about things like protein folding and how proteins fold in a certain way respond in a, to the body in certain ways like, like with drugs and things like that and so but we used to have to kind of brute force it or make them in, in labs but now with machine learning and that sort of stuff now you can fold proteins like virtually and just and just find and evolve the best proteins and we don't have to do it ourselves like evolve it in the computer basically and we can make these things that respond in a certain way or, or do something better than before and I think and it's very very fast can computer just iterate these generations generation after generation after generation and i think that there's that just opens a whole area of, of of science and and we don't even know it's it's a tool that in the past you'd call like a tool of the gods almost and and it's in the hands of people now and i like things like crispr which is not exactly what we're talking about here that's what i but, was thinking yeah and and crispr it just it's when you start thinking oh we, we can do these little things now and you we're already modifying the genome of animals and plants and 
the sky is the limit, really. I mean, and and the ethics behind that as well. Of you know, we, but that's a different story. Every technology can be good or bad. You can have you can have nuclear weapons and you can have nuclear power. You know, like you can you can sort of discuss different sorts of things. And uh, you know, yeah, there's there's very few bits of technology that, that are just for destruction. I think mRNA, it, people were very worried about that because they went, hang on, how come, how come it took 10 years to get a vaccine or 20 years and now we did it in a year? You go, well, they threw all the money in the world at it. There's the, you know, that's the big one. And we desperately needed it. And like Moore's law in computing, it, it's like computers doubling every 18 months. I know it's not quite right anymore, but the computing power is just increasing so, so fast. We can do so much quicker on them. Quantum computing is coming online. It can be tested much faster. We we um we don't have to follow these old ways of doing things, uh, and really, all that stopped us was the bureaucracy. But when the world went, we need the vaccine now. Then we we managed to make it safely and effectively, and and everyone get a vaccine. Just get a vaccination, please, please go get your vaccination. Thank you. All right, <laughs> just have to always say that. Get yeah, no, 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 completely yeah. agree with you. I'm triple vaxxed and proud. Oh, well done. So I'm yes, waiting for mine. I'm I'm ready to go. I just have to wait for my turn. It's because we all have, we all get a turn. Yes, Ten days for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's yeah, it's going to be good. I'm looking forward to it. And then, in, and I hate to say it, another six months there'll be another one, and six yep. months after that there'll be another one. And that's just the world we live in now. Just like your flu shot, but see, people didn't get their flu shot. Um, I work with children a lot. I used to get a flu shot every year because, and I didn't want to kill anyone. Not many people did, and so they thought, oh, we never had to do this. Yeah, you you probably should have been getting your flu shots as well. So this is just getting everyone up to speed of, hey, you know this weird disease. There are other weird diseases that you just didn't care about that were wiping Mm. out people, 50,000 Americans a year or something like that to the influenza. I think it's maybe more. It's it's, it's like lots of people dying from influenza. Mm. So let's reduce it all. Hey, crazy idea. Deaths from influenza in the US each year vary between sort of 20,000 cases in a good year up to about 100,000 cases in the the odd really bad year. And those bad years come around every sort of 10 or 15 or 20 years type of thing. The the worst one since the 1918-1990 pandemic was in the 1960s. I think it was closer to a quarter of a million people died in the US in that pandemic. It was serious in Australia as well. But otherwise, you know, you have this these little sort of cyclical bumps. To put that in perspective, though, so 20,000 people a year dying from influenza who otherwise might not have died at all, deaths in America average about 7,500 to 8,000 people per day. Mm. So an extra 20,000 people <clears throat> is, you know, like it's it's a significant number in the scheme of things, but it's an extra sort of three days, four days of yeah. their average average deaths, like sure. not, not to make too light of the fact that twenty thousand people are losing their lives, but just to put it in perspective, COVID deaths in America are now up to eight hundred and fifty eight thousand as of sort of last count. Yeah, that's that's not the flu. It's no. not even you know like it's it's a it's a really serious disease outbreak. Go and get vaccinated. Yeah, it's, yeah, no, absolutely. It's that's yeah. It, people say it's. I, I've actually heard people say, "Oh, it's just like the flu," and you're like. Just like the flu, except it's ten times more likely to kill. Yeah. It's, it's not nothing just like anything. Thank you very much. No. Stop it. But I also don't think people really appreciate what the flu is versus mm-hmm. what a cold is. Mm-hmm. I think when most people say, "Oh, it's just a flu," they really mean a head cold. Mm. Yeah. 
They mm-hmm. don't actually mean the flu. Mm. A flu knocks you around badly. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yes. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. Like, I had the flu once and, I mean, I think I was 18 or 19, so I was very healthy, but, you know, sort of the ideal age to get a debilitating illness like that. Mm. And I was convinced I was going to die for about 10 days. Mm. It was horrific. And I was like... I remember sort of, you know, finally leaving the house and, and going out, like just going down to the local library to take all my library books back and get some more because I'd read them all while I was dying. And just that little journey just drained me so badly. I always felt weak as a kitten and just absolutely hollowed out because it didn't occur to me that having been sick with the flu for two weeks would, would hit me that hard. And it was really like it, it took me a good couple of months to you know, get all my strength back and start to feel normal again. And that was the flu. And I've, I've had my flu shot, you know, sort of every time I've had it available since then <laughs> for that reason because I would not wish that on anyone. Yeah. And then to look at, and not just the immediate effect of COVID and like all these anecdotal stories that you hear of people who've had COVID and explaining to you what it's exactly like to have COVID. Mm-hmm. And then there's the whole long COVID thing. I mean, at least you don't get the long flu. Mm. Um, you know, you do actually recover from that and get on with your life. But, you know, long COVID, again, I'm not an epidemiologist. I'm not I'm not a scientist or a doctor or any kind of medical professional. As someone interested in health, you know, in policy and, and sort of, you know, governance and health policy, it really worries me. This this I, I really feel like we're sort of setting ourselves up for an epidemic of people with long-term, you know, illness and and Reduce capacity mm. because of you know just this I mean, particularly now and you know, not to get political but the whole let it rip thing that's <laughs> happened <laughs> over east mm. and you know the, the massive spike in cases we've had mm. um, is really quite terrifying. We're we're going to see something now we've not had to deal with in the twenty first century, even the late twentieth century. But uh, when you read books like Alan Marshall's "I Can Jump Puddles," like about the pol- a boy with polio, mm. and we don't get to see that anymore. We don't get to see polio. No. We got rid of it. We've dealt with polio. But polio, for those who are too young and too pretty to know, it would put you in calipers. So it could it, it would destroy your mobility, and it would really, really reduce your your um, enjoyment of life. It was a major debilitating illness, and you would see these people with these these metal legs and calipers. I can't. He couldn't jump puddles. The name of the book, and I think now. Uh, once again, I am not an epidemiologist. I am. A, I am. A, I, I just play one. No, no, I'm on television. No, no. I, I just, you know, but we're going to, I worry we're going to see long COVID and we're going to see the effects of long COVID in, in, in time. And it makes me sad. One of the things I, I only found out recently, because like you, I, I grew up post a polio vaccine being widely available and, and, and us as a society, not only in Australia, but around the world, going through the process of eliminating that. Mm-hmm. Most people who got polio didn't notice. Mm. The vast majority of polio cases, people didn't notice. For the portion of people, there was a portion of people, and I think it was maybe in 10% of cases, polio presented as a gastrointestinal bug, vomiting, diarrhea, and it persisted for a number of days, and and that's what it was for a lot of people. Mm. 0.5% 0.5% of cases, there or thereabouts, experience the sort of neurological damage that you were just referring to, mm-hmm. where it would impact feeling, mobility, the ability to control muscles, um, the development of people's limbs in particular. Like there were a range of severities there, but it was it was quite severe. And, and that sort of classic view we have of, you know, a child with sort of calipers and braces on their legs mm-hmm. was half a percent of all cases. Right. Some people died from it. 
But it's interesting to, to sort of say with that as the way in which the, uh, the disease presented, we still engaged in a worldwide program to eradicate the, mm. uh, the disease. It was something that wasn't questioned the minute that it was developed people were queuing up to get it administered. There was no question about, oh, but, you know, what about the effects of it? More mm. people today, more people today would have experienced polio as a result of the vaccine than people who would have caught it. I think right. it's twice as prevalent right. now yeah. um, that if, if you've received, like if you've experienced polio, it was because of the vaccine instead of you catching it. And someone sort of turned around and said the other day, if that happened today, mm. we, we wouldn't bother. We, we, we would have mm. all this palaver that we're having today about, oh, yeah, but what's in the vaccine? And oh, mm. have you heard about the adverse impacts? And, you know, it's not, we're not really talking about many people anyway. And, and we just wouldn't solve it. We just yeah. wouldn't go through the, like, there wouldn't be the political will. There wouldn't be the social will. You'd have this sort of ideological battle about, oh, should we, should we not? We, we wouldn't go down that path. But the numbers actually look similar to what we're seeing in COVID in terms of asymptomatic, symptomatic, and then serious, yeah. and then fatal. Yeah. Mm. I think with COVID, if COVID looked, if COVID was more visual, like visually terrifying, then we would have solved it much faster. Let's say mm. you bled from your eyes. So you, you cried tears of blood. Let's just say that was a, that was a symptom. More like Ebola. Yeah, not, not maybe not quite as evacuating as Ebola is, but even if it was just like you had something very obvious where you bled tears, mm -hmm. it, this would be over. We would not be two years into this. It, yeah. we, wouldn't, we wouldn't be accepting it because it would be terrifying. Everyone would be terrified out of their minds. We just – maybe this is an Australian thing, only now because of the horror that's going on on the East Coast, which I feel very, very horrible for, for all my friends and family and everyone, just everyone on the East Coast. And it's coming here to WA2 to a town near you very soon. Mm. Uh, it's, it's, um, it's going to it's, – it's actually affecting people now. People are experiencing it. For the first time ever, I've heard people go, oh, I've got it and I, Auntie May's got it and, and Uncle Jim's got it and, and the farmer down the street's got it and the bus driver's got it. And you're like, oh, somehow for two years we managed to minimize that and now it's gone less control. <laughs> <laughs> What are the cases in WA at the moment? It's still sort of single figures or double it's, digits. I think it's like thing. forty. I think it's it's um, that low. I think actually, I, th I think our active cases is a. I think it's, the last time I checked, I think was about seventy eight, but that includes all the cases from coming in from interstate and overseas who are not yeah, okay. counted as local community cases. Hmm. I think um, like the last two days we've had zero community transmission. Yeah, so we're recording this on the 8th of January. Yes, 8th of January because, mm. you know, what is time anymore, as I, I said to Greg yesterday. We're not trying to work out what, the, what on earth we were doing. And, yeah, so last night at, at 6 p.m. last night, um, some of our restrictions were eased, so we no longer have to wear masks in indoor settings and, and that sort of thing, mm. which is very exciting. I, was, I happened to be at the pub and it got to 6 o'clock and the whole pub just took their masks off. It was great. <laughs> it was very funny. And and I realized I shouldn't be laughing about this in light of what, because states in New South Wales, Greg. So, mm. you know, in light of what's what's unfolding in the East Coast, because again, I have friends and family in the East Coast, and I have a friend who sends me horrifying updates on stuff from Victoria, and he ends every text with "Stay where you are, do not leave WA." <laughs> so, we can't. So. Well, no, there's that too, but he's just like, <laughs> don't even think about it. Just stay, stay, stay yeah. in your, no, your nice COVID zero bubble, and do, are, do not embrace what I'm going through. We are through. very lucky to be in WA. Yeah. So right I'm now. in I'm in Sydney. 
Mm. Um, In my suburb in Sydney, so just my postcode, we've had 304 cases this week. Bloody Mm. hell. Just in my, and I'm actually in a pretty decent suburb in terms of being protected from it. It's not it's not bad by any stretch, by certainly mm-hmm. by by our our standards over here at the moment. Thirty six today, three hundred this week. So you know, wow. we're more cases than the entire state of WA. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Our because the the, mm. the outbreak that hit us just before Christmas was Delta, which mm. I th- I I think actually saved us. I mean, much much as you know, six months ago, everyone was like, "Oh my God, Delta is the end of the world." We were, I think we were really fortunate that the person who brought a COVID into WA um, inadvertently was infected with Delta and not Omicron because I think mm. if it had been Omicron, we would have been in a world of hurt. But we, we, we have actually got Omicron in WA now. A security guard who was working at a quarantine hotel was diagnosed with it. But thankfully, because he was getting tested daily as part of his job, they grabbed it the second he was infected and... He's obviously now in quarantine and everything else is already handled very safely we, in that. I, I think we need to change that phrase, quarantine hotel. Yes. I don't I don't think they're actually like they're not really quarantine. They're no, hotels. They're kind of, yeah, they're, not they're really kind quarantine. Of... They're sort of isolation hotels, mm, maybe. Exactly. But they're yeah. not quarantine. Quarantine looks very different. It's set mm. up very different. The ventilation is different. Um, you don't pump air into the corridor. You know, like a whole range of stuff goes on. Howard Springs is a quarantine facility. Yeah. Whatever hotel you're talking about in downtown Perth won't won't no. qualify. Just no. like the just like the Four Seasons in in Sydney or the Four Point Sheridan in Sydney isn't a quarantine facility either. Like we've, we, we really have stuffed that up. The, the way that it's set up a quarantine facility is pretty well known. It's pretty well defined. And we've had quarantine facilities for a couple of thousand years. You know, like we've, we've, we've known pretty much how to, how to handle quarantine for quite some time. That's not what we're doing here. It's not. No, and I have to admit, and, and, and you know, apologies, Greg, we're going to switch to the political, but what can has surprised and confused me with you know over the last two years because this time last year when COVID first arrived in Australia and we went oh crap what do we do and the state premiers came up with the concept of of the quarantine hotel I always assumed that that would be like a short term stopgap measure for a few months while we built proper quarantine facilities and then somehow that never happened. That wasn't that to do with the. No one wants to spend the money. No one spend tens of millions of dollars on building a facility that they ten weeks later you don't need to use. And so there's always that fear of, hey, if we build this, and then they'll say it's a boondoggle, and then I'll, I'll lose my election because of that. Mm-hmm. But what they didn't realize. 10 weeks kept passing, another 10 weeks passed and three months would pass and they never started because they kept yeah. expecting it to be over. And even now, like with the East Coast, they went, hey, it's we, we, we kind of dealt with Delta now. It's all kind of over, but not really, but it kind of is. Omicron came along came and kicked everyone in the bum. And so even now we're playing the game of it doesn't. It, it's not worth it. it. It's not, yeah, it's not worth it even now. Like mm-hmm. even, I think the one in WA that we're going to build, that's been delayed now. That's been, that's been, oh, and I don't know why it was delayed. I, I, read, I only just read about it. And, but it's been delayed. And I went, okay, well, will this continue to be delayed forever? But Greg, that's a very specific model of what a quarantine facility needs to look like. Now, I, I, I just finished saying we, we know what quarantine looks like and it's got certain characteristics and that kind of stuff. It doesn't have to be permanent buildings. 
We, like in, in other parts of the world, in response to a crisis, we throw up temporary facilities very, very quickly, housing hundreds of thousands of refugees, for example, who are displaced from war zones, displaced from, you know, natural disasters, that kind of stuff. We build tent cities, we build utilities around them, we provide them with power, running water, train facilities and those sorts of things. All of that, I guess, temporary. When the crisis is over, we break it all down again. It gets cleaned and it gets moved to the next crisis location or the next emergency location. In in really bad circumstances, it persists for a number of years, like some of the refugee camps that I've just been talking about in places like the Syria-Turkish border, right? Like those things have been around for a long time. But they get spun up very, very quickly. Mm. We don't have to break ground and pour concrete and, and do all of this kind of stuff. That's... That does feel wasteful, like in in some respects. We could have put up some facilities very, very quickly and been housing people for a couple of weeks in effectively glamping-style accommodation and and been way ahead of where we are right now. But because of that sense that it needs to look and, and act and be a certain thing, we're still waiting two years later. Yeah, and I think the success of Howard Springs we kind of tripped ourselves up with that because Howard Springs, it was a, a repurposed facility. It was never designed to be a quarantine facility. It just happened to have the characteristics that made it a perfect quarantine facility because it was a labour camp for, um, I think it was like either mining or gas or something, and it was it didn't happen to be in use at the time, so the NT government just went, oh, okay, well, that'll do. We'll just chuck people in there. And it just happened to be wildly successful as a quarantine facility. And everyone now looks at Howard Springs and goes, oh, we need to invest tens of billions of dollars or tens of millions of dollars, I should say, in something like that. And then what do we do with it once it's once the plague's over? Mm. And it's like, well, as you said, Steve, it didn't have to be like that. And what really worries me with the um, you know, the, uh, the the you know the Omicron outbreak in the East Coast is that everyone's going, you realise that this is, Omicron is not the final variant. We're actually setting ourselves up to create an Australian variant and there's no guarantee that that's going to be mild or less, you know, transmissible or less infectious right. or less deadly. And we still don't have any quarantine facilities. <laughs> or an mRNA uh, facility or, no. or, or. Yeah. We, we don't, what we have, it's it's been really interesting as, as a citizen of the country and and I'm frustrated too. I've I've been just due to my job and due to my family, and I've been back and forth across the country and and had to go into isolation, self isolation, not hotel isolation, but but self isolation three times. And that's and I and I did that with lesser degrees of enjoyment each time. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's not fun, but I understand it's a society I live in, and I do it, and so I kept to the rules uh, to try and help just to try and help people. So even though I wasn't happy about it. It's it's been interesting to me. I keep feeling throwing it back on uh, the leaders of the country for, on from on a state level and on a federal level seem to be saying to people, "What do you want?" Mm. And and that's fine. That's that's democracy, I guess. You could say, "Well, that's democracy." Uh, well, uh, it's actually ochlocracy. It's 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 um, mob rule. So, which you know, okay, that's a bit different, but that's a whole different thing. But but I I keep waiting for leadership where someone says, "Look, this is hard." We get it. This sucks. And I hate the fact that we can't go to Bali for a holiday. And I hate the fact that we can't travel here, that Aunt, Aunt Gladys has to stay in Britain, that we all have to stay one and a half. This sucks ass. And I'm and I'm really sorry, but if we don't knuckle down and let it suck, then we're going to be letting it suck for a long time. And mm-hmm. some politicians have a little bit to that. 
But there just seems to be this like, hey, follow me and I'll lead you to the land of milk and honey. And then when we get to the land of milk and honey, it's full of Omicron. Yes. <laughs> and no and no one's willing to go and 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 because I'm not a political animal. So may, maybe I'm just being naive here, but but I just get weirded out when a politician doesn't go, hey, look, I know six weeks ago or eight weeks ago, I said X. This is an evolving situation. This is global pandemic. You may have heard of it. And you know, but maybe don't be as sassy as that with the public. They probably wouldn't like it. But then you turn around and go, the information changed. Now Omicron is here. We can't, I can't let you out. I can't, we can't do it, everyone, because yeah. it's going to go really wrong really quickly. And when people go, you suck, and they will, they'll march on the street will. or percentage will. Mm-hmm. Then you go, you have to go, why we, we have to do this so we don't get, it's just going to happen forever. Mm-hmm. And, and I understand there's a, there's a certain percentage of the population that won't want to do it. And of course, there's always going to be a percentage of the population. Like that's always going to happen, and you just have to accept that and go. But most people will. I mean, I honestly believe most people do the right thing. I think Greg, that was one of the most impressive things about the way New Zealand handled the initial outbreak. So very, very early on, if you recall, New Zealand locked down hard for four weeks, five weeks, mm. um, and they've largely been COVID-free since. But the Prime Minister, Jacinda Ardern, sort of got on camera and said, this sucks, it's going to suck, I'm here with you. She was doing, you know, sort of nightly video check-ins mm. from her sofa in her living room, you know, sort of sitting there in a sweatshirt in front of the TV kind of thing going, yeah, like that was a boring-ass day and I can't leave the house and neither can you and I know it sucks and we've got, you know, 26 more days like it and we're going to do it together. Mm. They had Team New Zealand. I, I talked to on the podcast. We've talked to people around the world, mm-hmm. and uh, we talked to a lady living in Wellington. And there's very much a I won't say all everyone. There's always an element, but they have this Team New Zealand feeling. But maybe you can do that with five million people. You can't do it with twenty five million people or above. Uh, maybe, and I don't know New Zealand well enough, so I don't want to speak for New Zealand. But there is very much a state feeling of WA is different to Queensland, different to New South Wales, is different to Victoria. Which one's best? Who should we listen to? Who's the premier of Australia? All this garbage and. Mm. And you just, and I, it's, but there doesn't seem to be a, because um, let's face it, Victoria had to go through, we were locked down for 10 weeks in Australia. And, and then, and then poor Victoria had to lock down for a lot longer than that. Mm. And then it's just this, yeah, I, I, I don't really have a point there. <laughs> I just, it just feels that it was all state by state locking down and, and, and I, we didn't and I, really try. I have to say, mm. we didn't really try to create that unified sense of we're all in it together. Mm. Um, mm. There was, there were moments there where it looked like we might, um, mm. but we were very, very, and when I say we, I mean our federal government and our federal leadership were very, very quick to play favourites, mm-hmm. you know, to call out one as doing the right thing and sort of point to another and go, oh, well, um, if only you yeah. weren't a Labor government, we'd you know, we'd like it a lot more. You know, <laughs> yes. like there was there was yeah. that very real sense, unfortunately. And so that sort of, you know, that idea of Team Australia disappeared very, very quickly. I think one yeah. of the other things that happened in New Zealand that didn't happen here and we didn't try was that the New Zealand government involved other parties in their decision-making. Mm-hmm. And our uh, decision-making, our national parliament, but also at a state level, the various governments didn't really engage with their opposition counterparts pretty much at all. And it didn't really happen in Victoria or it didn't really happen in Queensland. So I'm, I'm not just saying it's a liberal thing. It, mm. it was definitely everywhere where 
the government sort of took control and made decisions and largely sidelined their opposition instead of operating in partnership with them. And again, I think that undermined that notion of, you know, sort of one team and, and being in it together. Yeah. If it's like a war, if it was if, if it was a war, like a, like a Australia was under some existential threat from an outside force, you would probably shake hands. Well, maybe once again, maybe I'm naive, but the people would, would hopefully shake hands across the divide and work it out and go, hey, let's put this aside while we while we deal with this issue. And when the issues, we can go back to backstabbing the heck out of each other. Mm. Uh, and maybe there was a fear of, of overplaying this plague, <laughs> but you probably should. If you overplay a plague, you're probably going to do better than underplaying a plague. <laughs> well, you- uh, and I don't think you're being naive there, Greg, because when, when you know in the two world wars, we had a war cabinet and the opposition leader was, was part of that cabinet and mm-hmm. part of the decision-making process and was briefed on everything that was going on. And when Morrison formed the National Cabinet, you know, quote-unquote, Albanese's exclusion from that decision-making body was noted and commented on mm-hmm. in the context of a, of a war cabinet and, and a lot of people felt that that was a, um, you know, it was, it was seen as a very, very political move on Morrison's part but also a bit of a poor decision on his part. I mean, and look, as, as a, you know, uh, as a citizen of Western Australia, I really can't criticise the sidelining of the oppositions too much because <laughs> we got rid of our opposition. You don't have yes. one. No, you don't, we you just, don't actually have one. No, no, no. No, we'll solve that problem by just eliminating them completely. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But I think, Basically. Greg, you, you made the point before that in many cases we've been making decisions as though this is going to be a fairly short-run thing. Mm. But it's only going to last a couple of weeks. It's only going to last, you know, and we, and we still do it even at the beginning of the most recent outbreaks. We're going to have a short lockdown. We're mm. going to lock down for two weeks. Actually, it's going to be four weeks. Actually, we're going to extend it for another four weeks and another, you know, like mm. but the, the, the framing of the decisions are always these short-term things. It's a short-term measure. We're going to do this for just a little bit of time and, and, and then we extend it. And I think the, the sidelining of the opposition Again, if you knew that it was going to be a long-term thing, then you would have put in place different dynamics and said, actually, we need to form a partnership and we need to make sure that this happens, you know, like in, in, in lockstep and we've got that support and we're going to put aside politics because... But it was treated as, I, I can score points here, you know, yeah. I can make them look irrelevant by keeping them out of the mix and here's me over here leading the charge type of thing. And I think also the the fundamental error that not not just Australia and not not just our government made was thinking that uh, as you said Steve the plague you know the plague the pandemic will be short-lived short run it'll be a few weeks and then we'll crush this virus and we can get on with our lives we can go back to normal. And I think um governments around the world severely underestimated the simple fact that there is no, there is no going back to pre pre COVID world. That world is gone and dead. And the concept of living with living with the virus, as as, as um, various leaders uh, have have sort of you know put forward, is it's a bit of a furphy in that their concept of living with the virus is basically just pretending it doesn't exist anymore. And we go back to pre COVID life and everything's hunky dory. And Omicron has kept kept going. We'll just hold my beer while I turn that little um, sort of you know thing on its head. But living with the virus is actually accepting 
this new paradigm, this new world order that we're going to end up in. And living with the virus is looking after the vulnerable, making sure that our healthcare systems are up to scratch, giving people pandemic leave and leave to go and get vaccines and giving them financial support when stuff goes terribly wrong and we have rampant spread of the virus and no one's voluntarily leaving their house to go to work because they don't want to die. You know, it is literally reframing how society operates to live with the virus and no one's talking about that yet. Not yet. Sorry to bring the tone of the podcast down a bit. No, no, no. Can we go back to the cats? (laughs) Let's go back to science. Let's go back to science. Why not? Why not? That's right. Tell us us how awesome science is. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. <laughs> dance, yeah. monkey dance. <laughs> you got, you got 15 spot, seconds. Cell Go. yeah, yeah. science. Right. Yes. I, I, okay. No, I, I, science is, people say, why do you like science in general? And you say, because science is understanding. And I think when you understand something, things are less scary. So mm. in this, to tie it in with the plague, uh, <laughs> if you understand how it works then and how it gets into you and how it all, like it, it how it, basically how it works it may not save you but it, it takes the fear out of it a little bit and that's the same with everything in the world every i'd much rather understand how a disease in my body was working and what i could do to mitigate the issues than not but everything else in the world as well climate change you know mm. climate issues that sort of stuff how does that work why is that happening is it you know why are we getting more extreme events why is every year the hottest year ever on record and it's not because we all want to run around scream and go, the sky is falling, the sky is falling. It's because I want to understand the world and then hopefully go, have you thought about X? <laughs> and then and fix something maybe, get, or putting someone in that right place or giving the right resources to people who can fix that, which is probably us. Everyone has to do something. But science is just the, the cheat codes of the universe and understanding how things work. And I think it's, it's beautiful. When I look up at the sky, I said my area is physics, astrophysics. So when I look up at the sky and I can see the moon in the day and people don't realize that's a thing, and you're like, well, there it is. And then you see, well, why is it a crescent here? And, and you notice how that crescent always faces the sun. So it's never going to be the other way around. And you go, well, so why is that? Like, and you go, well, that's because that's because where the bodies are in space and how the, they, they, they must be, three-dimensional bodies or these spheres so you start understanding that gives you an understanding of the of the solar system and you're, okay so now you have a map in your head of, of the world around you and the space around you and things stop being inexplicable and so you see something interesting in the sky and you don't go aliens you go okay well what is that what's going on what am i seeing how does it fit into my paradigm how does this going to slot in maybe it's something new maybe it is aliens it's it's never aliens but <laughs> it's you know one day one day well look i i want it to be it's just never aliens sure uh, yeah. so uh, it, so by learning about the universe, I find the world a lot less scary. When I walk around at night, when I go hiking, uh, even though I made jokes about biology before, I understand how plants work and how animals work, how snakes work. <laughs> and and so just by understanding these things, you may just call it bushcraft. Fair enough. It's science and, and it's understanding the universe. So I feel much less unsure of myself. Could I get water? Probably not. I'm a pasty white person, not designed for this country at all. But uh, you know, but it's, but at least I sort of have a better idea of stay with vehicles because the science says I'll have more chance of surviving and being found. So the world becomes a lot less scary for me because it's not. I'm not sitting next to a campfire with ghosts and goblins in the dark. I, I know what those noises are. I know that scream was a bird. 
it wasn't the 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 soul of my dead grandmother coming to drag me to hell. Like like these stories is, stories are fun, but by understanding, even not as a scientist, forget being a scientist. Not everyone can be a scientist. Not everyone should be a scientist. There aren't enough jobs. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> but 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 just by having it. Lay people, the, uh, uh, you should never say the general public, there's no such thing, but people who aren't scientists, if they can learn some levels of science in some area, the world becomes more understandable, less scary, and more fun as well. So that's that's my reason why everyone should learn science on a school level, high school level, and even beyond. And if, awesome. even if you're later, if you're out of school and you've never touched science you have the whole internet. I mean, you could do it by yourself, but there's things like, I mean, I'm not, I don't own these things, but like brilliant and all these different, all these like online learning sort of programs. You can go and pay a subscription fee, but the same amount you pay for Netflix, you know, you can learn, you can, it's, it's, it's there. Now, admittedly, okay, money is a thing. Not everyone has money, but there's a lot of free stuff out there as well and uh, that you can go and learn. So yeah, I, I always say, find something that you're interested in and just look at it for a bit and, and you'll discover something new. And you'll discover something that you're interested in, and then you'll be able to have a conversation with someone about plants or space or puppies or mm. COVID or <laughs> the climate or trees, whatever it is about you. I'm just looking. I'm literally just looking around the room now. Looking things I'm around, seeing in yeah. my eye line. I'm just saying yeah. those words. Uh, science is like science for me is structured curiosity. That's a great way of putting it. Yes, it's, you know, and and so taking a greater interest in science is simply mm. about taking a greater interest in the world around you. As you just pointed out, how do things work? Mm. Why why is that thing happening the way that it's happening? Why is it not happening some other way? Mm. And then there is this method and sort of uh, formal way of approaching the question and gaining confidence in the answers Mm. and making sense of the evidence that you see or hear or record or measure in some kind of way. I spent a bit of time uh, as a as a younger man tutoring students in mathematics, and oh. and one of the things that you almost always have to overcome first is two things normally. One, I just don't get it, and two, I'm I'm scared of it. Mm-hmm. And 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 once you can overcome those those two barriers, people find mathematics actually begins to make sense because they're at least willing to engage with the topic. You, know, you made the point earlier; you were sort of only half joking about it—that idea that you need to stop the kicking and screaming in order to drag <laughs> people kicking and screaming to science. And I found that very much, you know, this idea that actually, you know, I'm I'm just no good at it. I just don't understand it. Actually, I'm scared of it. Once you get past that. I, I always found that people would get at least, you know, sort of two or three levels beyond wherever they were previously. And a lot of the work that I was doing as a, as a tutor was to get people through an exam that they had failed <laughs> twice before. Oof, oh, it was wow. sort of that sort of two strike, you know, and I, and I have mm. to pass this next time, otherwise I'm, I'm out of my course type of thing. Mm. And they always did. They always did. They always got through it. But overcoming that fear was almost always the, the the greatest barrier to it. I always like to point out, though, I like to take it back. Sometimes I feel like I'm blaming people. Like, like oh, you should be more interested in science, people. You know, and and I and and there's a little bit of that. But I, I think also we have like Maslow's hierarchy of needs. So you have the base needs like food and shelter and that sort of stuff, and then and it goes up to like higher and higher, like self actualization and all the rest. But I, and I then think- there's science. And then, and then no, no, you're right. It's, it's, I mean, science fits in that self-actualization area. It's, it's super, super high up, and that's that's exactly the point, Steve. Is is we've got to 
if people are too busy surviving <laughs> and 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 not being able to put food on the table, why should they learn how why the moon goes around the earth? Who cares? I mean, honestly, and I get that. I am very privileged to be able to worry about the shape of the universe. I'm very lucky, and and I accept that. Uh, b- but part of me goes, and I'm going to throw it back at your political podcast. What <laughs> I want from political leaders is to create a system that allows people to self-actualize. To, and whatever that means, if that means raising a family, if that means painting, dancing, if that means science, I don't care what it is. Yeah. We have to get beyond surviving day to bloody day yeah. and 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 ha- wondering whether we're going to have a job next week and whether it can put a roof over our heads and can young couples afford to have children and blah, blah, blah. That's, that's all 18th century garbage. And we're still here in the 21st century having the same stupid conversation and blaming poor people. You're <laughs> poor because you didn't work hard. That your parents, why didn't you get born into a millionaire's family like I did? Like, you know, it's, it's just garbage. And I get that's what I want for my political parties, whatever political party that is, uh, being a very agnostic here, even though mm-hmm. I'm on this podcast <laughs> at the moment. I want my political leaders to create a situation that I can get my basic needs out of the way and then then I will then go and thrive. Let me thrive yeah. and I'll go do that. And if thriving is sit on your couch and watch Netflix, Netflix don't care. That, that doesn't matter to, to me, Gregoire. No. If that's all you want to do in your life, sure. I don't, I don't feel the urge to go, you need to better yourself, but I just want to give people mm. the opportunity to, inverted commas, better themselves. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think we do much yet in terms of providing an environment within which people can thrive. And I, and I do like that word in terms of measuring our well-being as a society, the success of our economy, the success of our social safety nets and the rest of it. Hmm. If we are looking at individuals who are clearly floundering, who are clearly languishing instead of thriving, then we're not doing a good job on those things. And once we create that environment within which people can thrive, well, then, yeah, they they are then in a position where maybe they will take up the arts, maybe they will take up languages, maybe they will take up science, maybe they will take up, you know, the performing arts or something like that. Yeah. They're gonna go do a job. Here's the other thing. Let's get merc- let's get mercantile. Let's get like, get down. Let's get into the money. At the end of the day, higher level thinking and higher level jobs pay better, and you're going to pay more tax on those jobs. And so, on a purely on a purely let's it's all about money. Having better better higher level or higher thought jobs or more higher skill jobs. That's a better way of putting it. You're, you're going to get paid more on average. And so if that's all that the government wants is money from its citizens, setting up situations where people can get better skills and self-actualize, it's mm. the, on average all society will do better purely for the fact that more money will get paid into the general coffers because most of us can't afford a, a millionaire accountant to make us get rid of our billions of dollars worth of tax, <coughs> Elon Musk. Uh, so. <laughs> So it's yeah, it's, that's that's I, I have no problem with people making money off their skills. I'm I'm a I'm a dirty capitalist in that way. Um, <laughs> it's it's okay to do that. It's but but I just find it. I I realize I was frustrated myself because I find it weird that we have a government on a federal government at the stage that seems to be about small business and about all this stuff, but doesn't want to set up a situation <laughs> that allows people to actually be better at the stuff that they want you to ah, I find it once again I am not a political being as, it just feels weird to me it doesn't feel a, like they're doing it properly as a small business owner I can assure you that this federal government is not 
for small business. They talk about being for small business, but by and large, they are not doing anything to support us besides cutting the tax rate, which which actually doesn't help. Mm. As a small business owner, it actually doesn't help me very much because that only affects profit. But all of the conditions that might help me generate a profit, at which point that tax rate starts to become meaningful, all of those things are being eroded and in, including actually having a healthy populace who are able to go out and spend money, <laughs> like yes. all of those sorts of things. Yeah. Um, like none of that is being taken care of. None of the investment in infrastructure is being taken care of. Like the investment in productive infrastructure that might help small businesses actually generate the investment in training, the investment in universities that generate intellectual property and, and knowledge and know-how that you might then commercialize as a small business mm. owner, the ability to generate export markets that would help a small business you know, export their, their produce or their products overseas that's actually being actively undermined by this sort of continuing parade of foreign affairs uh, faux pas. You know, like all of that stuff you would look at and go, actually, you are actively undermining my ability to be a successful business and, and operate a successful business. The profit part it isn't going to matter. It's like yesterday the federal government announced that they'll give 10 free rapid antigen tests to concession holders, mm. but there's no supply. Mm, yeah. It doesn't help. You know, like, yeah, you can get them for free if you can find them, but good luck being able to go out and find them. And who are those concession holders? The elderly and the disabled who are hardly in a position to go traipsing around the suburbs, you know, scavenging through pharmacy after pharmacy and and supermarkets trying to find them. Similarly with small business, cutting our tax rate that might allow us to keep more profit whilst undermining all of the means by which we might make that profit isn't really a very helpful situation. Mm. And Greg, you you, know, you make a. I mean, you keep sort of sort of saying, "Oh, look, I don't know. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm. I might be naive here, but I, I don't think you are. I think you're being very, very rational, very, very logical in going. Why can't we have a society that is engineered to allow people to thrive? That's like, what is the purpose otherwise? And we, <laughs> we you know, <laughs> yes. we we conducted a really fascinating experiment during COVID where we, uh, you know, doubled the job seeker payment. Literally mm. overnight, with a stroke mm-hmm. of a pen, we doubled that payment and we lifted thousands of people out of poverty. Mm-hmm. And the economy didn't collapse. Small mm-hmm. business didn't collapse. Like all, all of these, you know, bogeymen that have been put forward for reasons why we keep people in crippling poverty levels mm-hmm. in order to incentivize them to go get a job and, you know, help themselves. They were, they were all revealed to be a lie at, you know, practically overnight. Mm. But, and it, it, it really, and, and look, you know, I might get accused of being a you know, socialist hippie, but it really made me angry when we immediately rolled that back as soon as the, the first hint of, of, of the end of the pandemic was near, um, because God forbid that we should actually allow unemployed people to survive, never mind thrive. Live with some semblance you know. of dignity. No. Yeah. No. You know, yeah. and... And, and for me, because politics, I think, has, has similar problems to, to science. I mean, as you said, like, you know, you were very honest about occasionally falling into the trap of shouting at people and going, you should like science. Why? What is wrong with you? Science is awesome. And poli- you know, politically engaged people fall into that trap too because it's like, because it, there's the eternal question of why do people vote against their own interests? 
And because as you pointed out on the on the hierarchy of needs, they are just surviving. They're just trying to put food on the table, trying to get their kids into school, trying to do their job and have a life. And they have no bandwidth to give the slightest care about politics because they don't see politics as something that is relevant to their interests, even though it impacts every aspect of their lives. And so politically engaged, you know, people and particularly, and I'm going to call out the progressive side of the fence here because we're really bad at going, you should be involved in politics. It's, you know, this affects your life and people are going, screw you, I'm trying to hold down three jobs and feed my kids. Mm. And so rather, again, blaming people for not being politically engaged and for voting against their own interests and believing the scare campaigns and the propaganda and the the absolute bollocks that comes from our our current crop of political leaders, you know, there, there is a an onus on the politically engaged to make poli- not make politics attractive because God knows that's a bridge too far. That's you know, <laughs> we're not miracle workers, but make politics relevant to people and make you know make people um, make it accessible and and sort of and and I think and as you're right and you are hundred percent correct in saying what I want for my political leaders is you know a vision of society where I get to thrive. Mm. And I don't think that's a huge ask. I have spoken, you know. <laughs> Beautiful. It's done. That's it. Thanks for coming, Rick. Um, no. <laughs> but, yeah, so it um, falls back into why I, I um, you know, bailed you up and said, please come on my podcast and shout, and shout at me about science because I, I, th- I think there are parallels between politics and science and, and also crossovers because politics needs science in mm. so many ways and as a – science uh, embracing and, and affirming party that's key to, to, you know, who the Democrats are in terms of our philosophy and what we value. And from that springboard of science, then as a party we get to go, well, our vision for Australia is to have an Australia where people thrive. Mm. You know, that, that is, you know, Indeed. yeah. That that's a, you know I'll I mean and it and it's and it, I feel sometimes massively arrogant as as a member of a political party that is not actually represented in Parliament at the moment, going this is what we want to do for Australia we like you know make us a party of government and 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 everyone will thrive but you know we need stretch goals. Um, <laughs> so. You have a vision which is yeah. in short bloody supply at this point. <laughs> I mean, that's I'm. I like to be like whatever the vision is, whether I agree with it or not. I like a politician or a party that can go. Here's what we want to do, and you sit back and you're like, I agree with that. I don't agree with that. I agree with this. Okay, I'm I'm obviously on this side of the spectrum. I'm over here. I like that. Okay, when you're like, I don't know which way you're going to jump. I I get I get a little bit spooked, and mm. so just have a vision. Have any yeah. any vision. And then, and then, as a voting public member, I'll look at your visions and decide which one I will support. And that's a democracy, and that's how it should work. Yeah, crazy, um, right? I yeah, know it's weird. Catch on. I think at the moment the idea of the idea of political vision is a little like the um, dark matter of the universe. We we know that it's we we know that it's there, but we we just don't can't see. Don't know it. what it is. That's right. Yeah, yeah. We, we we can see the impact of it, but no one knows how to actually make it appear. That's can true. I can I just say with the talking about like thriving? I I always like to point this one out to people because not everyone is altruistic, and and we have to be honest about that too. And mm. say some people are in it for themselves. So here's here's my here's my sale to any listener who's listening right now who is in it for themselves. And you exist, and and you're part of the society. If people around you are, are thriving, they're less likely to come and get your stuff. Yes. So if you're if you're sitting at home and you've got stuff and they don't have stuff, they're going to kick in your windows and take your stuff. 
because that's what happens. People, people don't. I don't blame people who I've had stuff stolen from from my place, and and it's a bit scary, and I don't like it. But nine times out of ten, I go. God, that person needed that thing that nicked, and they're going to sell it for drugs, or maybe not. They're going to sell it for whatever. They're mm. going to sell it, and they needed it. They they were willing to put their life on the line to take my bike, and then they're going to sell it to a hop a shop for fifty bucks or whatever. And then they're probably not just doing it to 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 buy Bitcoin. You know what I mean? Like they're <laughs> they're doing it to they're doing it to buy the thing they need, whatever that thing they need: food, alcohol, drugs, shelter, right? Whatever it is. But if you live in a society, once again, I'm just pointing this out to the people who who don't who aren't altruistic. If you live in a society that that pays for these people to have okay lives, they're going to leave you alone, and you're going to be able to get on to accumulating wealth and doing whatever you need to do for you, and you won't be bugged anymore by these filthy hippies and thieves. So that's why you need to support it, even if you're a selfish human being. Support a society that wants to help the people around you, because then they'll leave you alone. And and we you you'll get on being a bastard. I mean, <laughs> which that's my sales pitch to to, to the selfish. This I love really, it. this is selfish altruism. I, I I think Greg as a as a pitch, it needs a little bit of work, a little bit of tightening up. <laughs> I think it would work. I, I, I have I a horrible feeling that if I stood up, if I stood up in front of a whole lot of people, and people of Australia, vote for me because I know you're a pack of bastards and you just want to get on with it. People would go. He's speaking some truth. <laughs> All you need is a, well, I know, no, we're not like the American system. We only need like fifteen percent of the population to back you. We we do need fifty percent, roughly. Yep. So yeah, but okay, look, look, fine, fine, Steve. I will bow to your uh, your political uh, nous. Look, we, we can workshop just, this. Yeah, I just know. think a little bit of work, just a little bit of polish. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's it's a bit awkward, um, you know, calling calling selfish people bastards when our our, our party's raison d'être is to keep the bastards honest. Well, look, it's look, awkward. Look, no, I don't. I think it kind of works, isn't it? Keep the bastards yeah. honest, and I, then I, you just call everyone bastards. We're keeping you honest. Yeah. I think there's, there's <laughs> there is a, a a nugget of truth in in what you've just said, which is that a a well functioning economy. A well-functioning society, a, a, a healthy and thriving community, is good for all of us. Yes, and and the more of us who are being taken care of, the more of us who have somewhere to live, something to eat, something to engage our interests, the better off all of us will be. And if we're mm-hmm. taking care of those who are most vulnerable, who have the least in our society, they will contribute to society as a whole in ways that benefits all of us. And when I say contribute, I don't mean economically necessarily. It may be artistically, it may be intellectually, but by addressing those needs that they have, just like all of us, then we'll all be better off for it. Like we absolutely will all be better off for it, much more so than if we find ways to put more money in the pocket of people who already have Everything they could possibly ever need. Uh, but I've heard yeah. this great idea called trickle down economics, where all the money's going to fall, fall out of billionaires' pockets right into my face. Should we talk about <laughs> science again for a minute? <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. And- <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Steve. I've, I've hit a raw nerve there. I apologize. No, no, all good. All good. No, it's funny because when we so to go back to the beginning of the podcast, when we we're talking about the mRNA vaccines, mm. there were Rick Morton from the Saturday paper had an amazing series 
on the lady who, you know, his, her life's work was was developing that mRNA messaging and who is, like, who has literally saved billions of people's lives now and is principally responsible for the development of the mRNA vaccines. And eventually someone's going to make a movie about her life because mm. this story is absolutely wild and, and I'll, I'll link to it in the show notes. But in a really brief summary, she had, you know, and it's odd to use the word faith in terms of science, but she understood the science of, of mRNA in principle and understood that this was something that that we could realise as, you know, as a scientific breakthrough and literally spent decades trying to get there, like trying to find that breakthrough and get there. And she kept getting her research defunded. You know, she was literally just moving around the world, going from job to job and university to university, grant to grant to fund and and pursue her science and she got there and and it was actually it was BioNTech who developed the Pfizer mRNA vaccine who eventually saw the op- the because she, she had the breakthrough and discovered how this could work and that was great and then um BioNTech went cool come, come talk to us and and uh you know we'll, we'll hire you and 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 help you develop your breakthrough and then when when covid struck that's when they just went, oh, we could, we could, you know, let's experiment. We'll use this for a vaccine. And then, you know, mm. the, the rest is history, as they say. And, and, and you joke, you sort of joked earlier about, you know, uh, the vaccines and everything is what happens when we throw all the money at the world at solving a problem. And we wouldn't have been able to do that if not for this scientist whose name tragically escapes me. And I'm very embarrassed because I should have looked this up beforehand. But um, Steve's currently doing it for me now. Thank you, Steve. It's always good to have a co-host as you back. Um, <laughs> So to bring it back into the whole thriving thing, this is why as a society we need to value science and the arts and, it, yeah, let's, we need to value people who want nothing but to sit on the couch and watch Netflix. They, they perform a valuable service, you know, because we all, we all need Netflix, Netflix critics and reviewers. You know, how else <laughs> are we going to know what to watch? And, and I just sort of think like her Astonishing, like because she just kept persevering, and this is this mm. is what gets me is that she persevered for decades to find this sort of you know holy grail breakthrough that she knew was out there and knew she could get to with the you know sufficient time and application of money and uh, fun you know research to to get there. And if we had thrown all the money at the world to her decades ago, I just sort of think like where would we be now with mm. the possibilities of what mRNA can do for us and. Yeah. All that sort of thing. And much smarter and much better educated people than me have talked about how, uh, you know, what we value as a society, what we value, what our, our political leaders value and, and our decision makers value is so very, very important. And the last decade or so we've lived through successive governments who have made it very, very clear that they either value the wrong things or mm. they value nothing. Mm. And we're seeing the fallout from that. This is why politics for me is important and 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 ties into why science is so important to you and and why science is important to me because I learned from from you and Dan. If we value the right things, we all get to thrive. We all get to benefit from it. And um yeah, that's I've sort of run out of steam on that one. But Carico is her name, by the way. Thank you so much. Thank you, Dr. Carico. Yes. And uh, it, to, to paraphrase uh, the Hamilton musical, the, uh, if you'd stand for nothing, what will you fall for? Yes. And that's the, that's the thing. If Once again, the whole vis- tying with vision. If you have a vision for something, then then you know where you're going and you know what you need and you're not going to get sidetracked by, by silliness 
you, you're you're going to keep working at it. I'm assuming that that doctor she uh, now owns everyone. That's how it works, isn't it? She said technically <laughs> saved all your lives, and now she is the de facto ruler of the planet. I think it's Look, how democracy works. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not a political person, so I'm not too sure. <laughs> Look, it's it's a it's a, a method of democracy we haven't tried yet, but I think it's, it's how many lives have you saved? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Excuse me, I have to go race out to the nearest uh, bus stop and like help old ladies and just get their votes. That's right. But look, I, I think look, there's promise there. Like it's it's it, we could give it a crack, see how it works. <laughs> Might take off. Who knows? You know, I I think putting uh, uh, Doctor Kariko Kariko Kariko, thank you, putting Doctor Kariko in charge of everything. You know, we can't be any worse than the uh, the leaders we have at the moment. With all due respect to the, the Jacinda Ardern's and Angela Merkel's of the world. Sure. The, the uh... <laughs> yep. Hey, listen, I've got I've got two quick two quick questions. I, I just want to throw at our at our science communicator just quickly before we wrap up. Mm. Fusion fusion power has been ten to twenty years away for a good sort of thirty years now. Are, are we any closer? <laughs> We are definitely twenty years away. I just a, a short twenty years from fusion power. It's uh, fusion power is kind of like aliens and the fact that it's not going to come until one day it's here. So right. I I constantly read about oh my goodness this thing oh my goodness this thing, but it never it always takes more power. Yes, there are fusion reactors, but they always take more power than they're putting out. Than they're generating the opposite yeah. of it's no, that's that's not a generator. No. Uh, <laughs> so it is a big problem. Yep. And all I can say is Tony Stark is really letting us down by not giving us the arc reactor. Uh, so from from Iron Man, he's flying around in a little suit. Yes. But no, unfortunately, damn you, Robert Robert Downey Jr. Uh, <laughs> Robert Downey Jr. Yeah. in your sexy ways. So uh, yep. yes, I I don't think it's coming, and I hope tomorrow I'm wrong. Yeah, <laughs> it, does, it does. It does feel like one of those things that it's going to be a, a decade away until it's here. Yeah. Yes, and it will solve. That's to solve all the problems. I, I will want to say though, hmm. yes, fusion power. If we could generate fusion power, and suddenly that stops, so we have this small fusion reactors that don't produce uh, a lot of waste or any waste, and can generate yep. power easily. Hmm. Absolutely, of course, game changing. Absolutely, we don't actually need it. No, uh, we don't. Uh, Doctor Joel Gilmore, friend of mine, scientist, energy guy, amazing Australian scientist. He's actually done a lot of work on this. Uh, Australia. We'll talk for Australia. Mm. Can actually use renewable resources to power itself. Yeah. This is and, and people yeah, are like, well, yeah, oh, yeah. can't be yeah. done. No, no, yeah. it's his whole job doing it. it we yeah. don't need fossil fuels. We don't even need nuclear in Australia. No. We just we mm. don't. And some countries might. We don't. Um, so we don't need fusion. We we've got this big fusion reactor in the sky that goes over every twelve hours. It's terrifying. Mm-hmm. It gives you sun cancer. What? We can just use that. I know we should <laughs> name it one day. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Did, and, didn't and your podcast do that though? We did. Uh, it's called Chad. Uh, so <laughs> the we we named the sun. That's what we do in our podcast. <laughs> Long story. Let's not go there. And uh, but yes. Yeah, so yes, we we don't need fusion. I but I still hope we'd get fusion. Yeah, it seems like it. I mean, the 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 promise of it is interesting. The availability of a lot more energy than we currently produce mm. in a way that is clean and safe has. Some, some benefits. Okay, that was one. Second one, wormholes. Possible <laughs> or not? Uh, oh, wow. I'm going to say no. And no? why? Yes. So t- the idea of a wormhole is you have some sort of singularity, like a black hole, a naked black hole, so you wouldn't have any kind of um, – you wouldn't have an event horizon around it. Mm-hmm. That's already 
problematic as heck yep. and it links through space and over a long distance and so you jump very quickly through this wormhole to another part of the universe in a shorter period of time than traveling through space time that as idea of wormhole as i said the event horizon concept is really you have a fully naked singularity and and um and as a mathematician you're talking about before that's not a thing uh that's <laughs> just not a thing <laughs> and it's un- very very unlikely that that's a thing of any mm-hmm. sort of naked singularity nature abhors singularity is much more than it abhors vacuums so mm-hmm. it, the other mm-hmm. issue is it's if it if it did exist it would be tiny it would be on the subatomic level and mm-hmm. to have a a, a, um, a mouth that you could send anything through. Uh, I mean, start off with you breaking causality, sending messages back and forth. But beyond that, if you sure. wanted to send you, me, a cat through even a, a bit of matter, mm. then you'd have to rip open it and it requires something called negative matter. And mm-hmm. uh, so, and which is totally theoretical, where that uh, instead of having a mass that has a gravitational field that pulls everything together, it has a gravitational field that throws everything apart. And that doesn't exist. That's not a thing in the universe. It's a theoretical thing. So we would have to have a singularity be naked, which math says no, and we'd have to have matter that pushes instead of pulls, and that's against the laws of physics as we understand them. So as we understand laws of physics, no. But once again, like to be wrong. (laughs) I'm looking forward to that, Walker Shane. But that that point about... (laughs) The point about gravity, though, gravity, I, I find, is one of the things that I think before I die, we will realise that we just never really understood. <laughs> well, you, you can, I don't want to say, you, we definitely don't understand it. We, we, can, we can measure the effects of it, but we sure. don't, it doesn't fit as a, you know, the strong nuclear force or the nu- weak nuclear force or electromagnetism. It doesn't fit into that into the four forces, even though we call it the four one of the four forces. Well, it doesn't, it even doesn't fit behave in terms of a force either. Really, no, no. Well, well, that's and that's, we we casually get around that by going, hey, uh, Einstein and relativity and space time. It's a curve in space time. Everyone, you're surfing the curve. It's great. Mm-hmm. And then you're like, well, that's marvelous. But then. Then you have quantum physics, which is a great theory. You have relativity, which is an amazing theory. Uh, uh, 19 decimal places, correct, something weird like that. Maybe even mm-hmm. 23 now, like really, really, really correct. Mm-hmm. And then we have quantum physics, which is a very small, very, very fast, very, very small. And that's really, really good. Our computers run it and all sort of cool stuff. But th- those two things don't talk to each other. So when you, when you get quantum physics to go big or your relativity and go small, they don't talk, which means we've stuffed up somewhere. Uh, <laughs> but it's really weird. We have two theories that work so beautifully that won't talk. We can't make them kiss. We put them into the science closet and we go, kiss, kiss. And we can't get their lips together. It's very anyway. upsetting. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but we, we have a similar issue, though, if you're the physicist, but if I understand correctly, we have a similar issue with gravity at a large scale as well. It, it kind of stops working. We don't at know yet. The, that's, oh, no, I, that's, a, that's a theory. That's an idea that maybe gravity over large scales, it, that's an idea because that's getting into MOND, so modified Newtonian dynamics. And a lot of physicists will go, <laughs> no, MOND is not a thing. So that, so MOND is, that's, yeah, that's, that's a whole us. other podcast we can go into. But yeah, MOND, serious physicists, and I'm going to really upset some physicists right now who are much, much, <laughs> who crush me like a bug. Serious physicists don't really look at MOND. It's not, 
it's because mond is in a way of getting around uh getting around of dark matter and but dark matter has far too many dark matter kind of works so we don't understand it fully yet so mm. um mond is probably not the answer once again i might be wrong but uh, probably not there's and, something about dark matter though that feels like we're just inventing an imaginary friend like philosophy, we had philosophy for a long time. We had this idea of this. We had this stuff, this ether that was around <laughs> us, and it was this Luther. And and but the difference is for we've seen time. the we've seen the effects of it. So it's not just like our, okay. The one I like to point out to people is our galaxy rotates, and it yes. rotates. We can measure the speed of it, and it's rotating ten times too fast. Ten times, and not just our galaxy, all galaxies are all madly rotating. And so we either we don't understand gravity or. There's, there's something that's holding it together. So, okay, so that's the first one. So you go, okay, well, that's fine. But then you look at, so you go, well, that's, that's, that was the first way we discovered dark matter or the concept of dark matter. People go, but ah, yes, but, but you know, maybe it's Mond. Maybe it's Newtonian dynamics not working properly. But we've, there's the, um, the bullet cluster, I think, or is it the butterfly cluster, bullet. I think it's the bullet cluster where you've got, when you look at where the gravity is, compared to where the mass is so you've got these two galaxies that are crashed into each other and you can see where all the visible matter is by looking at the lensing of the light behind it then you can say actually the gravity is coming from the space that nothing is (laughs) there's nothing there and you've got the luminous matter is the stuff that's being blasted away and it still has a gravitational effect but only like one tenth of what it should be and and you look at that and you're like well mon doesn't explain that mon in no way explains this problem at all uh but but dark matter really does this there's just this matter that we can't it that doesn't seem to it interacts probably nuclear strong and nuclear weak it doesn't and interacts with gravity obviously but it doesn't interact with electromagnetism why here's why we need to get off our high horses scientists and as human beings we're not even we're 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 a teenage species we're like look at our cool mobile phones and and our cool spaceships and we can take 16 years to get to pluto and way you know and and we're making a big telescope in the desert we're only at the start this is the beginning of the story the human story not even it's we, we have we, we've we've chapter one humans stop being dumb shits for a moment <laughs> that's where we are full stop we, we, we're still actually in that sentence yes. and we have the rest of human the rest of human existence I'm going to go a little bit metaphysical here for a moment. I think, you know, when you watch a- the shows about aliens and they go, the big headed aliens, big eyes, and they, and they all come down and they probe everyone's bums. And, it's, and that's like, and there's these ancient species. I think we're the ancient species. And what I base that on is the universe is only 13.8 billion years old. It's really young. It sounds like a long time, but the universe is going to be trillions of years old. It's going to be thousands of billions of years old. Um, red dwarf stars will burn for for thousands of billions where our sun will only burn for another uh, five billion or so so you know it's 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 all and then this whole gravity that so then there's um black holes decaying but we won't go into all that let's just talk about burning stars we're at the hot sexy start of the universe <laughs> where all the energy is and all the chemistry is happening mm. and and i think we're going to end up to be that ancient species if we don't you know wipe ourselves out but you know if if we can get over these these problems we're going to be the old species going hello everyone we need to check your anuses for things sorry about that it's it's we didn't make the rules uh and i think really where we're going to be i mean i like to think that sometimes where the period of history as in 
galactic history that chemistry talked. We're just talking chemistry. That's all we are. We're just chemical processes talking at each other and wearing cool shoes, to to quote Douglas Adams. So I think in the future, it's going to get more physics-y. Like we're going to have gravitational waves and we're going to have um, like different types of intelligences, but not now, not in the chemistry period of history. So that's my answer. I can't remember what the question was, but that's my answer. I love the idea that at some point in the distant future, humans, the human race out in the galaxy, discovering new civilizations, discovering new, new worlds, visiting those worlds, will be the aliens responsible for rectal probes and 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 you know basically <laughs> traumatizing the local populations and there is nothing in our colonial history that tells me that we won't be absolutely we will absolutely we will absolutely be those people <laughs> I'm sure it'll all be fine. It'll be us or we'll send our machines. We may not get off this planet. Biology is a bugger. As a biological creature, we just don't live long enough and we're made of water and we fall apart at the breath of a stiff solar wind. So it's really bad. But I think our children, as in our machines, will go into the universe and will be us. I don't, in the end, once again, controversial statement, in the end, I don't think there'll be any difference between humans and the machines that we make. They will be us. We will be them. And they're not going to kill us. I know you've got people like Elon Musk going, oh, they're going to wake up and fire all the missiles. You're like, did, did we make uh, we make artificial intelligence. I, I saw your artificial intelligence behind you, Steve, wandering around your house before. And I'm assuming you made them, unless they're your housemates, and I apologize. But I'm assuming you made some some artificial intelligences. That would you, I had and, and they haven't time. killed you yet. So is that, yeah. So it's they haven't killed you. We raise children all the time. Why do we think artificial intelligence is going to be different if we if we raise them as our children? They may dislike us. Not every kid likes their parent. They may think we're idiots, and they're probably right. But at the end of the day, we can teach them to be like us because they're going to be our children. Once again, maybe I'm a naive scientist guy, but yeah, that's it. And we're going to send our kids into space, and they're going to go. Oh, our parents were so embarrassing. They were made of they were made of chemistry and water. They're super. They got cancer. They're just the worst. But we love them. Here's a picture. Another alien's like, great. Please get your finger out of my bottom. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, just class up your podcast a little bit. Sorry about that. Oh, good. <laughs> but no, you make it look cool because like, the instances of children murdering their parents in the, in the greater scheme of, of, of the, the generations upon generations of humanity that we've had, very, very small. Very so, small. You know. In fact, that's, we wouldn't be here otherwise. If, if, <laughs> if, if your progeny murdered you more often than you produce progeny, well, <laughs> maths again. It's a limiting, it's a limiting move. Yeah. It's a, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's just one of those things. So, yeah, I, I, I think that it's it's – People are like, oh, it's going to switch on and look at the internet and kill us all. And you're like, the internet's not all awful. Like, I know it's got a lot of Nazis and good parts, but it's got a lot of cool things as well. I don't yeah. know. Yeah. I, yeah. yeah. I, you know, well, this is, yeah, I think uh, I, I love the idea of us being the colonizing aliens. Um, <laughs> I bet you do. And- <laughs> Sorry. No, no. But, um- <laughs> I've heard that about you, Alana. <laughs> Yes, first, first is uh, you know we're restoring the Democrats to federal parliament, and then we take over the world. And the whole, and then the universe. That's right. You heard it here first on the Australian Democrats uh, podcast. That's They're going right. to take over the universe, everyone. Yeah, but I can just see that, like you know, and 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 we're going to end up being the uh, literally the cat's paw of of the felines of the world as they take over the universe. <laughs> you know. <laughs> mm.
Yeah, I hadn't thought about it. Because you have, you have all these probes yeah. going out of the universe and encountering new civilizations and things and holding up a phone going, did you see my cat? <laughs> <laughs> He's Mr. Tittle. He's a little woogie-woogie. <laughs> like, uh, I, I can see that. Like our robot offspring arrive with their artificial intelligence. They find a new world. They establish that it's – and then like a few minutes later, the cat arrives and goes, yeah, I'll have this. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, this looks pretty good. You can feed me now. What's that uh, thing? Is it valuable? That crystal thing? Smash. Oh, oh well. Thanks, Greg. (laughs) That was awesome. Sorry. No problem at all. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for coming on for our final episode. It was great. Now that the the Australian Democrats' uh, universal conquest plans are out of the bag, Mm. they have to go into hiding. That's right, yes. Yeah, I'll be in trouble with my cats later on. They'll be going, you're not supposed to spill the secrets yet. <laughs> you said the quiet part out loud. That's right. Get the toxoplasmosis into it. Really just pump it into it tonight. That's right. Oh, like, cannot thank you enough, Greg, for coming on and shouting at us about science and allowing us to shout at you about politics. It's amazing. Oh, the the and- two deserve each other. Thank you. <laughs> Um, so if people have been inspired by your, you know, stupid humans, embrace science uh, rhetoric, <laughs> uh, where can they find you? And, and look and, up you know, Smart Enough to Know Better. So uh, you can look at the, just you type that into the internet, you'll find it as a podcast, Australian podcast of science, comedy and ignorance with uh, Dan Beeston and myself, Greg Wah. We've been going for 11 years. We do fortnightly podcasts about all sorts of interesting stuff exciting people from all over the world chatting about all sorts of cool things as well uh you can find us on twitter se2kb facebook look you know how to use the internet you're clever you just you know how to i don't have to explain we're on instagram we're on all the things we're not on tiktok because i'm not 15 uh so (laughs) other than that uh, we're pretty much everywhere else Yes, we, we set up a TikTok account and then we looked at our young Democrats and went, that, that's for you guys to play mm, with. When, mm. You know, us old people are not going anywhere near that thing. Yep, and then yep. a couple of our young Dems were like, we're not doing dances. We, we're like, not doing lost, like, you know. Lost immediately. <laughs> that's right. They're like, we're not doing political interpretation, interpretive dance. And, it's like, and this is why we, the Democrats don't yet have an act, a functional TikTok account. <laughs> <laughs> so sorry, TikTokers. Uh, we're working on it. But no, thank you again, Greg. And um, this has been wildly entertaining, at least for us. I- hopefully, our listeners will also find it wildly entertaining. Cat Twitter might be onto it. So, <laughs> no problem at all. Happy to chat in the future again. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks, Greg. I cannot thank Greg enough for coming along and shouting at us so entertainingly about science. And for all that I achieved my ultimate goal of combining cats and politics, this is definitely not our last episode. It's an election year for starters, and we have a budget to autopsy. If you want to listen to Greg shout some more about science, you can catch him and his co-host, Dan Beeston, on their podcast, Smart Enough to Know Better, and on Greg's spin-off podcast, Wild Wonders Why. I've also added a link to Greg's interview on the Curiosity of a Child podcast, which is a great podcast and a wonderful interview. And you should go listen to it now that you're finishing up with ours. I've also added links to the Saturday paper articles about our new world overlord, Dr. Carrico, and her work on the mRNA messaging that brought us the COVID vaccines. One of the signature features of SE2KB is that Dan will drop outtakes from the episode in after the credits. And so I've done the same on this episode 
as my homage to Dan and Greg, because without them instilling in me an abiding love for podcasts, this one probably wouldn't exist. So I, yeah, I totally blame them. It's their fault. We'll have another episode out very soon as Steve and I will be reviewing the budget and Rhiannon Kernow from the Young Democrats will be joining us to provide the perspective of the youth. For those of you who've not been following the budget coverage, this one has the distinction of being quite bad and yet weirdly completely forgettable all at the same time. So this discussion will be fun. And as we count down to the calling of the election, we'll have lots of news and new Democrats voices for you to listen to. So stay tuned. Keep the Bastards Honest is brought to you by the Australian Democrats. This episode was edited and produced by me, Alana Mitchell. If you'd like to keep in touch, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube and LinkedIn by searching for Australian Democrats and you can see what we stand for, what we value and what our policy positions are at our website at democrats.org.au. Until next time, thanks for listening. Being the Democrats, we are a party of science. We are, you know, we, we embrace the scientific method. We accept that as, you know, the best method of understanding how the world works and as part of our quest for evidence-based governance. And it's, it's like in this day and age where stuff that I thought would, would be settled and we would accept that <laughs> science, yeah, you know where I'm going with this. <laughs> I mean, we're a, a, a political podcast and our job is trying to make politics accessible to people because politics is the one area that people are like, mm, mm. Don't, do not want to get involved, do not want. But I think science suffers from that a little bit as well because it's probably perceived as being an in, impenetrable, nerdy, thinky stuff. Um, <laughs> and the one thing that SHKB does really, really well is peels away the impenetrable and make it really cool and fun and interesting. Oh, thank you. So, yeah. It'd be great to have a, have a whole podcast where neither Dan nor I had to do anything for it, except maybe edit it at the end, and they put it all together for us. Uh, well, we put it together for them, but they record everything. They just sent, look, that, I'd be happy to do that. That could work. Look, that's a good idea. Franchise it. Yeah. SC2KB, the franchise. Just do an intro and an outro. That's true. Hi, I'm a not- special guest today. That's right. I, yes, I'm not Greg and I'm not Dan. <laughs> Look, I mean, we, we've just started our podcast. We don't have a, a large listener base yet. But like, the most feedback I've had on the podcast is people who've joined the party coming through saying that they joined because of the podcast. Ooh. Yeah. Mm. Well, that's and working then. Like, yeah. Right. Like, you guys are my instant new favourites. Like, that's that's, right. yeah. <laughs> Thanks, <laughs> Mum. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You have to make sure you have to send uh, John Birmingham like a dollar every time you call them your favourite at that point. That's yeah, the way it is. Exactly. The- yeah, there's so much of my, my sort of, you know, internet colloquialisms have, I think, have been drawn either from SHKB or, or John. Like with the walk of shame, oh. like it's gone to the point where like at work and, and in conversations with friends, when I'm not 100% sure about what I'm talking about, I'd be like, look, this might be a walk of shame, but... And they're like, no, <laughs> it's like, what is a walk really of shame? Weird. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I didn't know it had two meanings. I, I only found out... Uh, at the end of last year, that the walk of shame had a dating connotation. I had no oh, idea. Yes. So for years and years and years, I used this term because I just thought it was a fun term. 
And then suddenly someone was like, oh, they they, made, they pointed out. And I was like, pardon, what? Oh, yeah, walk of shame. You know, it means like, you know, you, you end up with someone's place and then you sort of walk shamefully home. And I was like, I had no idea. Yeah. Never heard it. All these years, I mean, happily calling part of my podcast the walk of shame without realizing <laughs> there's this kind of weirdly sexy side sort of version of it. We're like, oh, that's fair enough. Looking, looking back, does the reference still work? Uh, yeah, oh, it's fine. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it's, it's okay. But it's just sort of like, oh, I just didn't realize. I didn't know there was a thing. I didn't realize that that it could be taken that way. I was like, oops. Oh, fair mm. enough. Yeah, so, so, so sorry, Steve. Steve has not listened to, to Smart and, Enough, so he and doesn't. Fair know. enough. I wouldn't yeah. either. Rubbish. Totally. <laughs> <laughs> just gibbering. He's, he's not all fair with all the like the in jokes and stuff. Oh, that's but, fine. Um, good no, good no, man. No, stay, yeah. stay clear. <laughs> but the walk of shame is when, like, if, if Greg gets something wrong, then the listeners are encouraged to write to Dan and correct Greg, mm. and then Dan nice. gets to shame Greg. Yes. Right, so, but we yeah. do ask our I listeners, like you that. can't just say you got it wrong. You've got to do a bit of research and explain how oh, you got, got to it prove wrong. it. Yes, yeah. yeah. And, specific. And, okay. and we check it and we check it as well. And we're a little bit mean sometimes with our listeners, but they're like, you blah, blah, blah. And then you look into it and mm-hmm. you're like, no, no, yeah. we didn't. No, no, we didn't. So, and then we have to like walk this fine line between crapping on our really nice audience, but you also kind of want to go, here's the thought process and where, why they thought this and why that leads to something. And yeah, it's something. Yeah. Good. Yes. Nice. I was like, absolute highlight of my, my listening experience was an I walk of shame to you about cats. <laughs> Was the best Ooh, about cats. I, yes, right, <laughs> that's okay. my one area of expertise. <laughs> I was going to say that that makes total sense. Actually, is Greg very foolishly said that cats were like the second animal that was domesticated? Mm, and and as, as soon as you heard that, I went, "No, they didn't. They domesticated themselves. We didn't do shit." Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Self domestic. Exactly. They just came in one day and wouldn't leave. Yeah, it's how, right. how I got my um, uh, one of my cats. He just he just walked into my house and just went, oh. yeah, so this will do nicely. You may feed me now. It's and, like domesticating a bikey. Like they, they just they, <laughs> they just break into your house. You didn't really domesticate it. They just chose to take over your house. Pretty Took much. Residence. That's it. <laughs> That's right. yeah. yeah, you're like we now live here. Okay, yeah. okay. Yeah, sure. this is my house now. I, I will graciously allow you to live here and feed me. That's right. Yeah, so. I'll, <laughs> I'll take it. We're quite proud of the fact that we actually have a lot of scientists in the Democrats for, you know, they, mm-hmm. they do a lot of our policy stuff. But what I wanted to do was bring you on as a non-scientist, even though you have a Master's of Astrophysics, so you are... I'm not a research actually, scientist. Yeah, Exactly. So that, yes. like, that kind of counts. I'm not a research scientist, yes. Because <laughs> yes. I was thinking about this and thought, like, if you have a Master's in Astrophysics, are you, like, are you actually an astrophysicist or, or yes. do you need to have... Yes. Are you? I'm, oh, that's awesome. Yes. yes. Yes, I am, but but I'm not a but. but it, I mean, once again, like anything, there are hierarchies, and people um, who, who do research yeah. would go, "No, you're not." And yes, yeah. but you're, it's, you're kind of like a lapsed astrophysicist. Well, that's right. Yes, that's exactly exactly right. I now eat I now eat space space fish on Fridays or something. <laughs> To your twelfth year now, you've just started into your twelfth year. Yes, yeah, started twelfth wow. year. Yeah, it's so in it, podcast terms, you're basically immortal. We well, basically sometimes yeah, yeah very, very very Methuselahs Methuselah <laughs> yeah we we were around well before nearly every major podcast was around uh, and and we weren't one of the, we weren't the first obviously but we were very very early in, in the in the game and we've just hung on and and now and that's why we're reaping the benefits of over a decade of monthly podcasting fortnightly podcasting. Let's get back to you. Let's talk about how awesome you are. Sure, thank you. Um, <laughs> it's my favourite topic. 
So okay. sorry about that. No, because I, I, um, I was saying to Steve, like, I thought Me, my microphone. Is, yeah. <laughs> I thought my microphone was playing up, and so I, I pulled it out and plugged it into a different USB port, and then just chaos erupted. And I was like, nice. oh god, what have I done? And you, um, you wrecked the internet. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. I broke the internet, and it's like, yeah. And so, yeah, so the lesson here is never get your heroes onto your podcast because you'll make a complete fool of yourself. So. <laughs> you need to aim higher, <laughs> much, much higher. Like really.